0: section 8 of chapter 21 of a history of england this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org history of england by thomas babington macaulay chapter 21 section 8 on the 10th of october the king leaving his army in winter quarters, arrived in England, and was received with unwonted enthusiasm. During his passage through the capital to his palace, the bells of every church were ringing, and every street was lighted up. It was late before he made his way through the shouting crowds to Kensington, but late as it was, a council was instantly held an important point was to be decided. Should the House of Commons be permitted to sit again, or should there be an immediate dissolution? The King would probably have been willing to keep that house to the end of his reign, but this was not in his power. The Triennial Act had fixed the 25th of March as the latest day of the existence of the Parliament, If, therefore, there were not a general election in 1695, there must be a general election in 1696, and who could say what might be the state of the country in 1696? There might be an unfortunate campaign. There might be, indeed there was, but too good reason to believe that there would be, a terrible commercial crisis. In either case it was probable that there would be much ill-humour. The campaign of 1695 had been brilliant. The nation was in an excellent temper, and William wisely determined to seize the fortunate moment. Two proclamations were immediately published. One of them announced, in the ordinary form, that His Majesty had determined to dissolve the old Parliament and had ordered writs to be issued for a new Parliament. The other proclamation was unprecedented. It signified the royal pleasure to be that every regiment quartered in a place where an election was to be held, should march out of that place the day before the nomination, and should not return till the people had made their choice. From this order, which was generally considered as indicating a laudable respect for popular rights, the garrisons of fortified towns and castles were necessarily excepted. But, though William carefully abstained from disgusting the constituent bodies by anything that could look like coercion or intimidation, He did not disdain to influence their votes by milder means. He resolved to spend the six weeks of the general election in showing himself to the people of many districts which he had never yet visited. He hoped to acquire in this way a popularity which might have a considerable effect on the returns. He therefore forced himself to behave with a graciousness and affability, in which he was too often deficient, and the consequence was that he received, at every stage of his progress, marks of the goodwill of his subjects. Before he set out, he paid a visit in form to his sister-in-law, and was much pleased with his reception. The Duke of Gloucester, only six years old, with a little musket on his shoulder, came to meet his uncle, and presented arms. "'I am learning my drill,' the child said, "'that I may help you beat the French.' The king laughed much, and a few days later rewarded the young soldier with the garter. On the 17th of October, William went to Newmarket, now a place rather of business than of pleasure, but in the autumns of the 17th century, the gayest, and most luxurious spot in the island. It was not unusual for the whole court and cabinet to go down to the meetings. Jewelers and milliners, players and fiddlers, venal wits and venal beauties followed in crowds. The streets were made impassable by coaches and six In the places of public resort, peers flirted with maids of honour, and officers of the life-guards, all plumes and gold lace, jostled professors in trencher caps and black gowns. For the neighbouring University of Cambridge always sent her highest functionaries with loyal addresses, and selected her ablest theologians to preach before the Sovereign and his splendid retinue. In the wild days of the Restoration, indeed, the most learned and eloquent Divine might fail to draw a fashionable audience, particularly if Buckingham announced his intention of holding forth, for sometimes his grace would enliven the dullness of a Sunday morning by addressing to the bevy of fine gentlemen and fine ladies a ribald exhortation which he called a sermon, but the court of King William was more decent, and the academic dignitaries were treated with marked respect. With lords and ladies from St. James and Soho, and with doctors from Trinity College and King's College, were mingled the provincial aristocracy. Fox-hunting squires and their rosy-cheeked daughters who had come in queer-looking family-coaches drawn by cart-horses from the remotest parishes of three or four counties to see their sovereign. The heath was fringed by a wild, gypsy-like camp of vast extent. For the hope of being able to feed on the leavings of many sumptuous tables, and to pick up some of the guineas and crowns, which the spendthrifts of London were throwing about attracted thousands of peasants from a circle of many miles. William, after holding his court a few days at this joyous place and receiving the homage of Cambridgeshire, Huntingdonshire, and Suffolk, proceeded to Althorpe. It seems strange that he should, in the course of what was really a canvassing tour, have honoured with such a mark of favour a man so generally distrusted and hated as Sunderland. But the people were determined to be pleased. All Northamptonshire crowded to kiss the royal hand in that fine gallery which had been embellished by the pencil of Van Dyck and made classical by the muse of Waller and the Earl tried to conciliate his neighbours by feasting them at eight tables, all blazing with plate. From Althorpe, the King proceeded to Stamford. The Earl of Exeter, whose princely seat was, and still is, one of the great sights of England, had never taken the oaths, and had, in order to avoid an interview which must have been disagreeable, found some pretext for going up to london but had left directions that the illustrious guest should be received with fitting hospitality william was fond of architecture and of gardening and his nobles could not flatter him more than by asking his opinion about the improvement of their country seats at a time when he had many cares pressing on his mind He took a great interest in the building of Castle Howard, and a wooden model of that edifice, the finest specimen of a vicious style, was sent to Kensington for his inspection. We cannot therefore wonder that he should have seen Burley with delight. He was indeed not content with one view, but rose early on the following morning, for the purpose of examining the building a second time. From Stamford he went on to Lincoln, where he was greeted by the clergy in full canonicals, by the magistrates in scarlet robes, and by a multitude of baronets, knights, and esquires, from all parts of the immense plain which lies between the Trent and the German Ocean. After attending divine service in the magnificent cathedral, He took his departure, and journeyed eastward. On the frontier of Nottinghamshire, the Lord Lieutenant of the county, John Hollis, Duke of Newcastle, with a great following, met the royal carriages and escorted them to his seat at Welbeck, a mansion surrounded by gigantic oaks, which scarcely seem older now than on the day when that splendid procession passed under their shade. The house in which William was then, during a few hours a guest, passed long after his death by female descents from the Hollises to the Harleys, and from the Harleys to the Bentinks, and now contains the originals of those singularly interesting letters which passed between him and his trusty friend and servant, Portland. At Welbeck The grandees of the north were assembled the lord mayor of york came thither with a train of magistrates and the archbishop of york with a train of divines william hunted several times in that forest the finest in the kingdom which in old times gave shelter to robin hood and little john and which is now portioned out into the princely domains of welbeck thorsby Clumber and Worksop. Four hundred gentlemen on horseback partook of his sport. The Nottinghamshire squires were delighted to hear him say at table, after a noble stag chase, that he hoped this was not the last run which he should have with them, and that he must hire a hunting box along their delightful woods. He then turned southward. He was entertained during one day by the Earl of Stamford at Bradgate, the place where Lady Jane Grey sat alone reading the last words of Socrates while the deer was flying through the park, followed by the whirlwind of hounds and hunters. On the morrow the Lord Brooke welcomed his sovereign to Warwick Castle, the finest of those fortresses of the Middle Ages, which have been turned into peaceful dwellings. Guy's tower was illuminated. A hundred and twenty gallons of punch were drunk to his majesty's health, and a mighty pile of faggots blazed in the middle of the spacious court, overhung by ruins green with the ivy of centuries. The next morning the king, accompanied by a multitude of Warwickshire gentlemen on horseback, proceeded towards the borders of Gloucestershire. He deviated from his route to dine with Shrewsbury at a secluded mansion in the wolds, and in the evening went on to Burford. The whole population of Burford met him, and entreated him to accept a small token of their love. Burford was then renowned for its saddles. One inhabitant of the town in particular was said by the English to be the best saddler in Europe. Two of his masterpieces were respectfully offered to William, who received them with much grace, and ordered them to be especially reserved for his own use. At Oxford he was received with great pomp, complimented in a Latin oration, presented with some of the most beautiful productions of the academic press, entertained with music, and invited to a sumptuous feast in the Sheldonian theatre. He departed in a few hours, pleading as an excuse for the shortness of his stay, that he had seen the colleges before, and that this was a visit not of curiosity but of kindness. As it was well known that he did not love the Oxonians, and was not loved by them, his haste gave occasion to some idle rumours, which found credit with the vulgar. It was said that he hurried away without tasting the costly banquet which had been provided for him, because he had been warned by an anonymous letter that if he ate or drank in the theatre, he was a dead man. But it is difficult to believe that a prince who could scarcely be induced by the most earnest entreaty of his friends, TO TAKE THE MOST COMMON PRECAUTIONS AGAINST ASSASSINS OF WHOSE DESIGNS HE HAD TRUSTWORTHY EVIDENCE WOULD HAVE BEEN SCARED BY SO SILLY A HOAX, AND IT IS QUITE CERTAIN THAT THE STAGES OF HIS PROGRESS HAD BEEN MARKED, AND THAT HE REMAINED AT OXFORD AS LONG AS WAS COMPATIBLE WITH ARRANGEMENTS PREVIOUSLY MADE. HE WAS WELCOMED BACK TO HIS CAPITAL BY A SPLENDID SHOW which had been prepared at great cost during his absence. Sidney, now Earl of Romney and Master of the Ordnance, had determined to astonish London by an exhibition which had never been seen in England on so large a scale. The whole skill of the pyrotechnists of his department was employed to produce a display of fireworks which might vie with any that had been seen in the gardens of Versailles or on the great tank at the Hague. St. James Square was selected as the place for the spectacle. All the stately mansions on the northern, eastern, and western sides were crowded with people of fashion. The King appeared at a window of Romney's drawing-room. The Princess of Denmark, her husband, and her court, occupied a neighboring house. The whole diplomatic body assembled at the dwelling of the Minister of the United Provinces. A huge pyramid of flame in the center of the area threw out brilliant cascades, which were seen by hundreds of thousands who crowded the neighboring streets and parks. The States-General were informed by their correspondent that, Great as the multitude was, the night had passed without the slightest disturbance. By this time the elections were almost completed. In every part of the country it had been manifest that the constituent bodies were generally zealous for the king and for the war. The city of London, which had returned four Tories in 1690, returned four Whigs in sixteen ninety five of the proceedings at Westminster, an account more than usually circumstantial has come down to us. In sixteen ninety, the electors, disgusted by the Sacheverell clause, had returned to Tories. In sixteen ninety five, as soon as it was known that a new parliament was likely to be called, a meeting was held at which it was resolved that a deputation should be sent with an invitation to two commissioners of the treasury charles montague and sir stephen fox sir walter clarges stood on the tory interest on the day of nomination near five thousand electors paraded the city on horseback they were divided into three bands AND AT THE HEAD OF EACH BAND rode ONE OF THE CANDIDATES. IT WAS EASY TO ESTIMATE AT A GLANCE THE COMPARATIVE STRENGTH OF THE PARTIES, FOR THE CAVALCADE WHICH FOLLOWED CLARGE'S WAS THE LEAST NUMEROUS OF THE THREE, AND IT WAS WELL KNOWN THAT THE FOLLOWERS OF MONTAGUE WOULD VOTE FOR FOX, AND THE FOLLOWERS OF FOX FOR MONTAGUE. THE BUSINESS OF THE DAY WAS INTERRUPTED BY LOUD CLAMORS, The Whigs cried shame on the Jacobite candidate who wished to make the English go to mass, eat frogs, and wear wooden shoes. The Tories hooted the two placemen who were raising great estates out of the plunder of the poor overburdened nation. From words the incensed factions proceeded to blows, and there was a riot which was with some difficulty quelled. The High Bailiff then walked round the three companies of horsemen, and pronounced on the view that Montague and Fox were duly elected. A poll was demanded. The Tories exerted themselves strenuously. Neither money nor ink was spared. Clarges dispersed two thousand pounds in a few hours, a great outlay in times when the average income of a Member of Parliament was not estimated at more than eight hundred a year. In the course of the night which followed the nomination, broadsides filled with invectives against the two courtly upstarts, who had raised themselves by knavery from poverty and obscurity to opulence and power, were scattered all over the capital. The Bishop of London canvassed openly against the government, for the interference of peers in elections had not yet been declared by the commons to be a breach of privilege. But all was vain. Clarges was at the bottom of the poll, without hope of rising. He withdrew, and Montague was carried on the shoulders of an immense multitude from Westminster Abbey to his office at Whitehall. The same feeling exhibited itself in many other places, The freeholders of Cumberland instructed their representatives to support the King, and to vote whatever supplies might be necessary for the purpose of carrying on the war with vigour, and this example was followed by several counties and towns. Russell did not arrive in England till after the writs had gone out, but he had only to choose for what place he would sit. His popularity was immense for his villainies were secret, and his public services were universally known. He had won the Battle of La Hogue. He had commanded two years in the Mediterranean. He had there shut up the French fleets in the harbour of Toulon, and had stopped and turned back the French armies in Catalonia. He had taken many vessels, and among them two ships of the line, and he had not, during his long absence in a remote sea, lost a single vessel either by war or by weather. He had made the Red Cross of St. George an object of terror to all the princes and commonwealths of Italy. The effect of his successes was that embassies were on their way from Florence, Genoa, and Venice with tardy congratulations to William on his accession. Russell's merits, artfully magnified by the Whigs, made such an impression that he was returned to Parliament, not only by Portsmouth, where his official station gave him great influence, and by Cambridgeshire, where his private property was considerable, but also by Middlesex. This last distinction, indeed, he owed chiefly, to the name which he bore. Before his arrival in England, it had been generally thought that two Tories would be returned for the metropolitan county. Summers and Shrewsbury were of opinion that the only way to avert such a misfortune was to conjure with the names of the most virtuous of all the martyrs of English liberty. They entreated Lady Russell to suffer her eldest son, a boy of fifteen, who was about to commence his studies at Cambridge, to be put in nomination. He must, they said, drop for one day his new title of Marquess of Tavistock, and call himself Lord Russell. There will be no expense, there will be no contest. Thousands of gentlemen on horseback will escort him to the Hustings. Nobody will dare to stand against him, and he will not only come in himself, but bring in another Whig. The widowed mother, in a letter written with all the excellent sense and feeling which distinguished her, refused to sacrifice her son to the party. His education, she said, would be interrupted, his head would be turned his triumph would be his undoing. Just at this conjuncture the Admiral arrived. He made his appearance before the freeholders of Middlesex assembled on the top of Hampstead Hill, and was returned without opposition. End of section 8.